And to see how shiny and sparkly someone like her and this, you know, the, when they come in after having had this, <laughs> drain bags and kind of like, oh, I'm swollen and I'm helping. Oh my God, I'm hellishly heavy. So. Hey, Refab. My name's Kate and welcome back to Keeping It Real, the podcast exposing the deep, dark secrets from your favourite plastic surgeons. I mean, not that dark or deep or necessarily a secret, but this week Kim and I go mano a mano and talk about what she's learned from over 15 years experience, her most impactful patients and what a typical day in theatre looks like. Welcome Kim, jumping right in. When did you first know you wanted to be a surgeon? Ooh, that's the basics, <laughs> basic. I thought you were going to ask me about when I wanted to be a doctor. Had oh, that yeah. one prepared. But, oh, um, yeah, okay. No, that's okay. You can go uh, surgeon. <laughs> you can pivot. All right. So, well, yeah, I guess, so when I wanted to be a doctor, it's definitely not something I'd had as a lifelong dream. Um, I was in high school and I'm kind of like, you know, good at maths and sciences and, you know, where can that lead you to be a maths teacher or a <laughs> science teacher? Um, in my final year of school, I was maybe going down the engineering pathway and I got into medicine as well and so it was sort of a bit like oh what do I do Um, but I had one episode where I actually I was playing a lot of sport and I had an injury and I had a tournament with school coming up and previously I'd been to see doctors and they're always like okay we'll just rest and um, You're you know, the best at that. there. <laughs> I'm not the best. Probably was a lot worse then. But also, like, if you've got an event coming up, you don't want to hear that. Yeah. And I remember somehow. I think he was probably one of the original sports doctors. Like this is in the 80s um, in Dunedin, so pretty smallish town in New Zealand. And I went there with my mom, and he was like, "Okay, so what sports are you playing? What do you want to do?" when do you want to be back playing? And it was kind of like, well, tomorrow. And he was like, okay, let's be proactive. And so I think I got a jab on my bum. So, you know, not so much fun. But um, he was – it really made me think, oh, sports medicine is awesome because this guy wants to make me better. Not that any other doctors don't want to make you better, but it was wanting to not just say, hey, you know, stop doing something. Here's a way to – um, go forward and so that definitely was so to seed of you know that's something I wanted to do and all through med school that's what I would always say like what what do you want to do I want to do sports medicine um, ultimate dream to be the doctor for the all blacks and for <laughs> most Australians probably still would know who the all blacks are but that's the New Zealand national rugby team and in fact I did one of my electives in my final year of med school with a female sports doctor in Christchurch because I did my clinical years there and behind the scenes I actually thought it's quite a boring job (laughs) Um, and she actually ended up being the doctor for the All Blacks so she ended up doing my dream job and I ended up doing my dream 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 job (laughs) so um, yeah I I actually did a little bit of time um, in the army as well when Mm -hmm. I was at medical school and so to me that was sort of some sports medicine as well because you've generally got young fit healthy um, people with uh, either sicknesses or injuries that are relatively short term Um, and I did enjoy that but 
I did have some great mentors when I was a medical student in my later years and in my very junior doctor years who were general surgeons who were excellent and that really set the seed to being a surgeon mm. was when I was a junior doctor um, because you see someone coming in and I did a lot of general surgery so that was more bowel type stuff so someone would come in they're really sick and um, you do an operation on them and generally they get better. So yeah. it's not chronic disease. It, and a little bit, I guess, you know, to back to that sports medicine thing, someone's got a problem and you fix it. And it's not like other some other branches of medicine where you're actually seeing the same patient over and over and over for many, many years. Um, and there are some parts to plastic surgery that are like that, like skin cancer, but each treatment you still kind of cure them of that yeah. skin cancer right, they just right. come back with more and more <laughs> over the years um and yeah that's sort of the interesting just what sport were you in ah what were you doing? so the tournament was coming up was weirdly it was badminton which mm. i wasn't really i didn't really play badminton i played squash all through yeah. high school quite competitively yeah. um but i'd swum um and i my winter sport was hockey and squash sort of all year round. But my school didn't have a squash team and my best mate played badminton. And so I was like, oh, I might, the easy I, might, I, might <laughs> I might, give that a crack. Um, I think I may have ended up beating her in the uh, champs that year, but whoops. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so I got to play badminton for the school against other schools, which I wouldn't have in, be able to play for my school team with squash because yeah, right. a very, very small school. So, so you said you, like... Going back, you're in Christchurch. So, is that? Did you do most of your study in New Zealand? Uh, all of my university in New Zealand, and all yeah. of my junior doctor years in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and then I moved to Sydney in the early two thousands. So, next year will be my twenty year anniversary yes. in Australia, mm-hmm. which you know, because I'm clearly so young, it's half my life. Not mm-hmm. quite, um, but yeah. So. Um, the path to get on plastic surgery training is tricky everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so I had, I mentioned general surgery, so I was actually kind of going down that path because it genuinely interests me. And then I did a plastic surgery rotation thinking that it will be useful skills to learn for general surgery. And I was like, oh, wow, this is way cooler. Like you yeah, right. get to make things even better. Yeah. And one of the definite deciding points at that time was a was doing a breast reconstruction. So working in general surgery, you see women and you diagnose their breast cancer and say, well, you've got breast cancer, we're going to have to treat you, you know, either take the lump out and have radiotherapy or take your breast off, full stop. Whereas as the plastic surgeon, you're seeing a patient nowadays and a little bit back then when they've just had that diagnosis, but then you can say, well, it's a really, really shit time for you, but my job is to be able to make your new breast if we can and if it's suitable and if that's what you want. And so for me, that was a lot more um, interesting, challenging, um, and you really had options with a lot of things that you do. So, you know, like you've got a breast cancer, you have to cut it out kind of thing. Whereas for reconstruction, there's there's often different ways to treat different problems. So it's very, very tailored to each 
patient. Um, and so, <laughs> love that. <laughs> and uh, and so then I had to switch, and it was tricky. And I worked in two different plastic surgery units, two of the four in New Zealand. So moved a couple of times, and didn't get on the training program in New Zealand the first year I applied, and. A surgeon that I actually really didn't know that well that was working in that unit rang me to say, look, really sorry I didn't get on, but I've got a mate in Sydney and they've got a job that's not a training job but that it's a path to get there. And I, you know, we think that you would fit really well there and you'd do pretty well. Um, And apparently he was right because I moved to (laughs) Sydney about six weeks later and when I applied in Sydney to get on the training program, for training in Sydney the following year I got on for the following year so it still was a process but man it was all the eggs in one basket and up and moved to Sydney and knew pretty much no one and um, worked hellish hard especially in that first six months um, on call. What are those kind of hours like? Um, I've tried to black it out. Like, you know, you <laughs> kind of forget. I think it's like, well, you know, people go back and have more babies. Like, you do you do forget. And yeah, that was in, that was 2003 when I moved mm. there. Um, I was doing a one and two roster at that time. So that means every second day, every second weekend, you're on call 24-7. And is that you just doing, like, stuff, you know, like if someone slices their hand yep. open or whatever, like they Absolutely. go to the general hospital? Yeah, and it, it was a big trauma hospital. at Liverpool Hospital was where I was, so oh, wow. not in a salubrious part of Sydney either. And the surgeon that I – or, the, he, you know, he, the senior doctor that I was working with then, the other registrar, he had – just finished all his exams and he was in his last six months of his training so essentially he had no interest in dealing with cut fingers he was trying to set up a practice and so it was like Kimmy will fix it um for pretty much everything and so I didn't sink um and sort of survived that six months and a bit of a blur but got a lot of support from that unit and from him and um yeah the the hours are variable and a lot of the time you are doing operations, cut fingers after hours, but it's the, you get home, you go to bed and then someone rings you at two o'clock in the morning with, fine if it's something that's actually important, yeah. but a lot of the things that we deal with can be temporised and ring me at seven in the morning with the people that you've yeah, yeah. dealt with overnight. But one, I have to tell you that one of the, the worst phone calls I ever had was, and definitely one of those two two thirty in the morning. Um, and it was a doctor ringing me from the emergency department, and they said hand bone broken, and I was like, "Uh huh, I can't um, sew that together." <laughs> <laughs> but we dealt, we did deal with broken bones of the hand as well. That was part of our specialty. But it's like there's, I'd have to count them now, more than twenty bones in the hand. And um, you're a doctor. Can you describe <laughs> which bit? Where and, on the hand is it? And I kind of realised quite rapidly that he really was out of his depth. And so, I, I so if there's if there's a cut over the break, then it's a bit more important. So I was like, is there any blood? <laughs> no. Okay. Can you put a plaster on it or put a bandage on it and? Uh, give me the patient's name and I will see them at 
six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. Is he when about I come to go in. play tennis there, for the night? Yeah, like, yeah, there, <laughs> there's nothing that important at yeah. two o'clock in the morning. Um, so yeah, challenges like that. And then of course you lie there in bed, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. I'm so furious with this stupid phone call yeah, yeah. that it, you know it almost makes it worse for the following day. Did you ever think that you'd stay in Australia? Was a plan to always go home? Oh, I don't think I really had a plan in those early days because it was literally like uh, my focus was to get on the training program and then that was the next four years sorted in Sydney and then yeah my my plan was actually to go back to Sydney at that time I came to Melbourne for 18 months Mm, 13 years ago (laughs) Uh, more than 13 years ago yeah and so um, what did you come to Melbourne for? I came to Melbourne to further specialise. Okay. Uh, so I had a job with Richard mm-hmm. as one of my mentors in, a, in his private practice. So to deal That's with... just proof how much older Richard is. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to this episode, Richard. Um, yeah, Rich respectively is, you know, not a whole lot more senior, but yeah, mm-hmm. he's definitely... Uh, uh, more senior than I am and so worked in his practice for six months and did quite a lot more body and breast surgery then um, and then I did 12 months at the children's hospital while still actually doing a little bit privately because my children's hospital job wasn't full-time and I had a bit of private assisting with other surgeons in Melbourne at that time but my fellowship that I did then, which I've done pretty much none of since then, was in uh, paediatric microsurgery and hand surgery, which is super interesting um, and super specialised. And unless you work permanently in the children's hospital, you pretty much don't get to specialise in those areas. Um, and so I, I did work there for a pretty did short you time. Did that? Afterwards. Or was that kind of like... No, I chose... Like, that was chosen. And I, I had originally wanted to go to America to do that fellowship and I did all the American medical exams like your med school type ones oh <laughs> which which meant a trip to LA for a, an eight hour clinical like fake clinical sort of a day um there's, there's better things I know <laughs> sucker for punishment right I've, I haven't done enough exams in my training and everything oh, wow. but I'll do some more and I remember there was like spotted rotty, rocky mountain fever and things like that that I had to learn but there were oh, kind of Books that were just purely multi-choice that you just sort of yeah. learn the pattern a wee bit. Right. Um, but I was quite disappointed because I never found a job in America that suited the things that I wanted to do, which was at that time some hand surgery and breast surgery. Um, and I found those in Melbourne and uh, ended up never going back to Sydney yeah, right. or New Zealand. So. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Sorry, Mum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Big sorry to Mum. So one of my other questions was going to be, um, you know, had you always specialised? So was it mainly like you'd specialised in hand surgery and then um, – and like breast obviously coincided and then went to this or was there any other points of specialisation? Uh, those were the main things. I, th- I think most of us when we start out as plastic surgeons do – a broad range of things so for many years I did lots of skin cancer some hand surgery and you do tend to especially in private practice end up just doing what gets referred to and what you see in the room so you know you have a couple of GPs or dermatologists that refer you skin cancer you, you see a lot of that um, I really didn't get a lot of referrals for hand surgery like I always did a bit of that and I worked in a public hospital in Melbourne 
up until a year ago um, and still did a lot of hand surgery there and that's trauma and um, things that come through clinics, so carpal tunnel syndrome, Jupitrons, those kind of things. Um, but really privately, it, it did go down that breast path relatively early on um, and I think it's almost that snowball effect, like you have a couple of really happy patients with one operation and they whether through social media, word of mouth, through friends, or even occasionally through their GPs, are like seeing, oh, who did your breast reduction? And then they tell the other patients. And it just kind of snowballed from there, I think. And then that part of the practice got busier. And the less you do of the other things, right. it's the less comfortable, confident you feel at doing them. So um, the facelift, rhinoplasty, I, I had done those all the way through as well, but oh, yeah, just not not so many. And so yeah. you just feel like, you know, I'm much more comfortable doing these other breast and body surgeries. So it's like, okay, you, and at some point just draw the line in the sand and say, I don't do those anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, Was that kind of like a tough choice to make? Like, because you're kind of putting all your eggs in one basket at that point, right? Yeah. No, I don't think it was. Um, and I think Rich and I being on the same page with that really was was really good as well because yeah. he had been, still been doing a few rhinoplasties as well. Um, and, yeah, you just you just kind of get to the point where you're like, you know what, it's not, it's not as rewarding or you, you see one referral a year and you're kind of like, well, should I really be trying to be the jack of all trades or should I just be – awesome yeah. <laughs> and for a few things <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah you know and and then people come to you and like I still get their question occasionally now like oh you know I want my eyes done as well like can you do that and I'll, mm. it's just yeah. in a way and in a way it's easier just to say no like yeah, I, the last time like I did eyelid thing. surgery yeah. couldn't tell you I don't even five, know where an eye is five years ago <laughs> um and yeah, I could totally do it but I, I just kind of think you're probably getting better getting someone else to do that. Yeah, of course. Um, to jump back a little bit, what was the hardest part of training, do you think? Sleep? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, um, definitely sleep de- deprivation. Having no – not really having any of your own life. Um, I, don't, I don't have any family in Australia and I don't have um, any kids and at that t- – point in time I didn't have a partner and so it's like probably I think that was easier because like I only had to look after myself um but you feel like any downtime you have you just want to lie on the couch and recover and not have your phone go off and um so living in a city that's new to you and not really having much of a huge social connection like most of my friends in Sydney are through work like nurses that I work with and you know certainly don't, don't feel sorry for, you know I had a life and um but trying to fit in people and exercise and holiday and getting yeah. home to New Zealand to see friends and family there that's probably the hardest thing especially when you're on call so much as yeah well. yeah and it's like literally you know the worst job was basically six months on call yeah. um and then the least bad ones was um, one in three or one in four on call. And it's kind of like, oh, my goodness, I've like so many free weekends. Yeah, yeah. Um, and probably the second hardest thing, I know you didn't ask that, but no, keep, keep is, um, <laughs> is dealing with 
um, people and personalities and more so of the the your supervisors and the surgeons that you're working with and working for. Um, and being a trainer, you kind of just have to everyone does things differently and their approach is different and you'd be on call and you'd have like three operations that you need to do after hours but as a junior doctor like I'm capable of doing them but your supervisor has to know so you'd ring up and you couldn't get hold of them or it'd be like oh hi Dr. So-and-so you're on call at X hospital today oh really oh I didn't know that Um, like I'm in the middle of a lake fishing I'm like Okay, well, I've got these three operations. I'm quite happy to do them, but and sort of, but you know, at times feeling quite unsupported. But they're sort of, yeah, well, you, you'll be fine. Just crack yeah, yeah. on. Well, we can eat anything. I'll start to row back to shore. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know what they actually expected, and so I, you know, I tried to take some of that with me when I was a supervisor. Then to mm. my own trainees, once I was a specialist, to be like. You know, I always knew when I was on call. I never said that when, and I don't know if they're just game playing or whatever. Because yeah. there's there's that definitely seem like that. a bare minimum. It's like, <laughs> check like, your roster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm on call. I'm yeah. not really going to do much today. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it, you know, our trainees are very capable, and the same sort of thing. It's like you know, you can do those operations absolutely, but if you need me at any point, I'm willing to come in and help you, yeah. and to just trying to be sort of a bit more present and just be there to help and teach them. And so like, on top of that, was there anything else that you kind of, was your like a big learning or takeaway from training? I mean, it doesn't have to be surgery related, just. Mm. Um, yeah, just trying to make t- time for yourself. And I think that's when I moved to Melbourne to do my fellowship because I had, I did no on-call for that yeah. 18 months. So it was suddenly like, wow, I have an opportunity to do other things with my time. So, mm-hmm. Um, that's when I started into triathlon or started running actually was the first thing with a running group um, through one of the anaesthetists I worked with at the children's hospital. She was like, I'm starting running (laughs) on Monday and uh, I'm picking you up and we're going together. And I was like, oh, okay. And I can still remember now, you you know, we run and I've done marathons and half marathons, all sorts of things. And I remember their first day that, they were like, okay, the warm-up is just run to the 1K marker and back. And my friend Ooh. and I were like, uh, yeah, so my program is kind of like run one minute, walk one minute, and yeah. I think even that's going to be hard. Oh, yeah, you too. You, you, that, that was that was the warm-up. And I'm kind of like, whoa. And now I'll be like, yeah, yeah. okay, that's fine. Um, and also being to the children's hospital is obviously close to Colton, and so I started learning Italian back then as well. Oh, nice. and, and so, yeah, making the opportunity of having time when you yeah. when you have it, yeah. which was I feel like it had for probably p- badly for four years, but probably more like six to eight years had been yeah. a lot of that taken away from yeah, me. Definitely. And and it is a means to an end, and you have to have it that um, you know a degree of exposure to actually learn. And and I know things are a little bit different these days with safe working and I totally believe in safe working hours but there is an amount of work and exposure that you have to do to learn and be good at what you do and be able to deal deal with all of that yeah just to recap all that so how many years were you like training and studying before you were on your own in the big wide world oh so six years in medical school two four about 
eight years as a junior doctor and a trainee. And mm. I did have one year completely not working in the middle of that. Um, I did a little bit of locum work, um, overnight shifts to make a ton of cash to travel <laughs> that year. Um, and that was prior to doing any any training. Um, so, yeah, I think it was about 15 years before from finishing school to I got my ticket in my hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now you are obviously fully fledged and very um, – established what does a typical day in the surgery theatre look like for you ah good question um (laughs) so I most days most weekdays I get up around five something and do some kind of training in the morning um so it depends what day of the week it is but in the mornings would normally be a bike ride and if it's an operating day my bike ride would be in my sports room at home where I have the um bike and treadmill set up and big tv and surround sound um so it's it's not all bad and (laughs) it's not watching it's not weather dependent um oh i've been terrible at watching anything i've watched a little bit of um good revenge anyway it's a it's a bit cheesy but um mostly she's probably listening to music at the moment or watching sports so if it's been a grand prix weekend Mm -hmm. or um sailing so sail gp is actually a super crazy, super fast sailing races. That There's one on this weekend, so mm-hmm. probably watch some of that next week. Um, or swim. Um, that's the other thing I would do in a morning before work. And always a coffee at home before I walk out the door. And then, depending on the day, coffee and breakfast afterwards before hitting the day of work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then a day in the operating theatre is... Um, uh, it's very enjoyable, I think. It's a very controlled environment. Um, there's there's lots of people. So anyone that's been into theatre will know, like, as you walk in, and like, there's usually the comment is, there's a lot of people here. Yeah. Um, and really overwhelming. Well, not, maybe not overwhelming, but just, like, so unexpected. Yeah, if you didn't expect it, I think, especially as a patient, that when they – because at some of our hospitals, they actually walk into the room, and as they should, because they're <laughs> fit and healthy and yeah. climb up on the bed. You don't necessarily have to get wheeled in, but – um, yeah, generally there would be five, six people in the theatre and each one has a really important role and a, a lot of the staff they work with are regular and have been for years and years and so um, obviously we're very focused on the job that we have to do and everyone has their role but there are you know there are times where we can, can work and chat at the same time and catch up on good movies and what people have been up to Um I have music playing. Um, I don't control the music in my own theatre. <laughs> I, yeah, I just actually quite like to have someone else. So um, either anaesthetist or the assistant actually has a usually a playlist and um, anyone can have a say uh, or a skip or whatever if it's <laughs> music they don't like. Um, and, yeah, it's 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 a good place to be, um, nothing much else. You can only do what you, the operation at hand, so... Yeah. Um, How many surgeries typically do you do in a day? Uh, would be three usually, three or four procedures. So, um, yeah, I was just trying to think. Yesterday I did a breast reduction with an upper back lift on my first patient and then the second one had a tummy tuck and removal of implants with a breast reduction at the same time as well. Oh. So that was it's sort of like four procedures but – to patients yeah, right, right. um so uh yeah i don't like to work 
after dark, well, summertime. So that's like, but um, put her on yeah. Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't like to work um, really past sort of five thirty, six o'clock. Uh, I, you know, I just don't. I've, I've worked enough long hour days in my time. I think I prefer to just have, you know, eight till eight till five or you know, ish type of hours. I have my phone's on silent when I'm in the operating room as well. So, yeah, right. um, uh, like obviously you guys in the rooms, if there was something urgent about another patient, you know where I am, and so mm-hmm. can call through to the hospital, call through to the operating room. Yeah. But my, I'm not getting. Like I remember when I was a trainee, there was one particular surgeon I distinctly remember, and he always used to have that Bluetooth earpiece in oh my 100% of the time of his day. So he's operating, and you're there in the middle. It'd be like we were in the middle of this kind of, we're just chatting, mm. operating, and he'd be like, hello, 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 yes, yes. And he would start talking away on a phone call, and like – you're not that important, mate. Yeah. I'm not that important. Like, Time um, and place. I, yeah. Poor guy can like, wait. Exactly. The car guy. Yeah. <laughs> All the things. And, yeah, like I, I want to be available to patients if they need it, but mm. I operate in office hours and yeah. the office here can scrap and can contact me if it's that urgent. And to be, to be fair, like that's probably – Less than one in a thousand. Yeah. Oh, where that would actually, oh my god, we need him like right now. And if that's the case, I'm still in the middle of an operation. It's not like yeah, I can yeah. not much stop and be like, oh, well, I'll come back to that in four hours or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's a patient whose like experience or results have really stuck with you? Oh. Um, probably one of the original patients that I did a breast reduction on, and that documented her journey on Instagram Mm. and she was definitely and this was you know pretty early days of when we had set up re so obviously I've been doing the surgery for a long time before that Um, and it was when Instagram was really just coming through for patients to be documenting their journeys on that I think and I think she was also in a in the Australian breast reduction Facebook group Mm -hmm. and I probably had 20 patients in the next few months come in and say I've seen X um, breasts and she's I I want that (laughs) Um, and so yeah that like definitely definitely stuck in my mind in terms of because it was really like the first time people were coming in and going uh, you know I've seen her yeah um her photos and heard her story so I think she was uh, and I'm not in that breast reduction group it's purely for patients and but so many people coming in saying her name and saying you know or showing me the photo and going these are the breasts that I like and I'm like I know who that is yeah yeah exactly and that was really when the, when the um, power of Word of mouth mm. through social media, um, it w- became super apparent. I think, um, but I, you know, it's it's it is hard th- that journey. But it is hard because we have so many amazing patients yeah. um, that are you know that it's just a privilege really to be part of their story, their journey, and to see how shiny and sparkly someone like her and there's you know they, when they come in, 
after having had this <laughs> drain bags and kind of like, oh, I'm swollen and I'm helping. Oh my God, I'm hellishly heavy. So, If you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear requests for future topics. So send your suggestions through to us on IG at Replastic Surgery. That's all for today. And we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.